If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This Saturday, the 20th of July, marks the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. For today's podcast, we've got an interview with the historian Kendrick Oliver, who wrote a feature on the Apollo 11 mission for the August issue of BBC History magazine. Our World Histories editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Kendrick about the space race that led to the landing in 1969 and its impact back on Earth. How, looking back now in 2019, should we see the space race? Should we see it as this sort of idealistic... Uh, aim to get to the moon, or was it grounded in more realistic political uh, concerns, I suppose? So I think the um, the space race is fundamentally part of the sort of broader Cold War, and um, I think it's very difficult to, to disassociate it um, from that, which is not to say that it doesn't have some sort of independent elements or um, elements that speak to a sort of wider set of uh, concerns. But I think if you're thinking of about why it is that the Americans and the Soviets engage in a um, in, engage in in uh, a competition in space, both in terms of sort of satellites and then um, manned expeditions, and, and then going on to to the moon. It's in many ways a result of military investments, the development of um, military hardware. Um, that make this possible in the first instance. Uh, the hardware is, in very, in, is being built by uh, companies and institutions that have experience and have developed their expertise um, uh, developing weapons um, uh, to be fought, uh, to be used in, in the Cold War in, in, in the sort of worst case scenario. Um, there is a lot of um, military space activity also going uh, on around the um, uh, the notionally sort of civilian um, space programs. And of course, the kind of rationales for uh, engaging in um, uh, the space race are very much related to questions of kind of Cold War space. Uh, prestige, um, you know, 
main reason that John F. Kennedy was interested in going to the moon is not because he had any particular personal interest in in space exploration, but he um, was aware this is one arena where um, people were looking at, particularly in the kind of newly decolonized or decolonizing areas of the um, the global south, the third world, um, that they were looking at uh, space exploration and what the Soviets were achieving and beginning to think that maybe this was uh, a sign that the Soviet model of economic organization, central um, planning was the way to go. And that was not something that um, uh, Kennedy was very keen. It was not a lesson that he, Kennedy was very keen that they should learn. So he wanted to uh, create an image of um, uh, almost kind of Ameri- of of space exploration and 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 the Apollo program as being a a sort of sign that the American capitalist system would work um, uh, even more effectively than the Soviet model. Um, and this is obviously a period of history that culminates in a man landing on the moon in 1969, but it stretches for quite a long period of history back in time. What can we identify as being some of the most important early events that led up to that final result? Well, that's that's a really interesting uh, question. I think this this perhaps points to that there is a there's what some historians call a, a sort of long space age, which um, dates back at least as far as as uh, p- private funding for astronomical observatories um, in the uh, in the 19th century. Um, and I think that that actually sort of speaks to a although we, although we can very much sort of emphasize the the kind of cold war context for for space exploration um there are a lot of other things going on that, that a lot of other kind of cultural and social factors and concerns that, that uh, shape how people respond to to um space exploration and going to the moon um there are, for example, concerns um, uh, growing over the course of the, the 20th century, or, or awareness at least going over the 20th century, that the, that the sun is going to die eventually, and that therefore um, uh, there's going to be a need if the human species is going to continue eventually to to, to move to some other arena of uh, um, uh, space. There's a lot of interest in what's called sort of astrofuturism, um, the idea that uh, you might find a in outer space somewhere in outer space a better sort of site for social experiment that there might be in the opportunity to create more ideal societies on a place other than um, earth um, and there's a lot of interest in the idea that the next frontier and and, and both the Soviet Union and the United States have um, long traditions of, of sort of frontiers that that the idea and, and, and so there's an idea that you would um, uh, the next step that one makes as a society is to venture beyond the terrestrial landmass, and um, given that the kind of Earth is fairly well populated by the mid 20th century, that the next obvious place is to go um, beyond that. Um, so I think those sort of broader sets of concerns are, are very much sort of uh, alive, and they they sort of surround uh, space exploration as a sort of idea from the mid century onwards. Are there then specific moments in the first half of the 20th century that we can pinpoint as being key stepping stones in this in this process? All right. So, um, yes, I mean, I think one of the key things that we need to be aware of is that what, what helps to create a popular market for um, space flight by um, the 1940s and 1950s? Um, obviously, there are sort of kind of uh, geostrategic rationales, Cold War rationales, but there's also a long 
popular interest in space flight, space exploration, the question of extraterrestrial um, life. And so from the, the late 19th century onwards, and you can think about there are people writing like Jules Verne, um, uh, there's a growth in, of interest in, in science fiction. H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, for example, again. And by the, by the 1920s, both in the Soviet Union, in the United States and elsewhere, um, there's a growing kind of literature, popular literature in, in forms of, of, of novels, but also um, uh, comic books, uh, exhibitions. The Soviet Union experiences a sort of space craze in the 1920s. Um, uh, and a lot of the people who are uh, who subsequently become the sort of pioneers of, of space exploration. You think about people like Werner von Braun or Sergei Korolev in, in the Soviet Union, probably generate, there's some evidence that they are very responsive to these sort of scientific, uh, science fiction um, uh, novels and, 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 and culture. And it's that that sparks their original interest in the idea of, of, of kind of rocketry and space travel. So um, a lot of the sort of seeds of, um, as it were, the imaginative seeds for, for the space age, uh, uh, you know, take root in, in the early 20th century, I think. And, and how much uh, was the Second World War and its military advancements an important part of this? So the Second World War is really incredibly important as a sort of uh, a moment that uh, helps to sort of provide the sort of template for what space exploration is going to um, uh, involve over the course of the next uh, few decades. The principal thing that we need to think about, I think, is the the, the development of the V2 rocket in um, in Nazi Germany. Uh, rocketry was seen by the um, uh, by the Nazi regime as something worthy of investment because it wasn't, uh, as a new technology, it wasn't explicitly banned under the Treaty of Versailles. And so uh, the German army was quite interested in, in, in um, the development of, of rocketry. And by 1942, Werner von Braun was leading a, um, a, a major uh, organization on a, 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 to develop uh, an offensive rocket, which at that point was called the A-4. And that uh, first took flight in, in 1942 and really sort of proceeded up to the, the boundary um, of, of space, up into Earth's upper atmosphere. Um, and Werner von Braun, was a space enthusiast. He was interested in rocketry because he was uh, concerned with, um, uh, he was interested in, in developing the means of space, uh, space exploration and service for the German army was, he regarded that as, as a sort of the price to be paid or the, the, the best, most likely sort of route through um, to being able to achieve those dreams. So World War II makes it possible, I think, for um, the V2 rocket to be uh, developed. And really, we see a lot of the subsequent technology in terms of rocketry, both in the Soviet Union and the United States as sort of developing out of, of the V2 rocket. And a key next step, of course, was the development of of a satellite. Um, who were the key players in that, and how did that unfold? Well, that's that's a really interesting question. The 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 American interest in a satellite had once the Americans were aware that the the uh, of the V two rocket. By the late 1940s, there are um, there is some consideration. There are various studies going on within the United States about the possibility of of launching an artificial satellite and the purposes that that might um, uh, serve. But they, they they tend to remain on the desk as sort of general sort of studies that that people are interested in, without wishing wishing very much to invest um, large amounts of kind of resource 
uh, into. That really sort of changes in the mid-1950s as the Americans um, become more and more concerned about Soviet the, the, the capacity of the Soviet Union to launch a surprise attack that would uh, affect U.S. soil. And so one of the means by which they start uh, or, or one of the things they start thinking about as a means to to prevent that, or at least to detect a, a surprise attack, but before it becomes a nasty surprise, is by getting surveillance, um, uh, overhead surveillance of of the Soviet Union's uh, territory, and this leads to such things as the U2 program as well. Um, it's very very difficult to do um, by any other means because you you know the Soviet Union is a closed uh, society, and therefore you can't. It's not that easy to have people sort of wandering around and having a look at seeing what what what's going on. Uh, and so the other device that they start thinking about is is a satellite. But of course, if you launch a satellite and name it as a uh, surveillance satellite, it's more, more most likely thereafter to get resistance from the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union will protest about it. Um, and so what you need to do is cast the satellite, the first satellite, the precedent-setting device, basically as as a as a scientific device, uh, a peaceful device. And so it's in that context that the that the Americans um, in the mid 1950s announced that they're going to launch a uh, scientific uh, satellite um, in the International Geophysical Year. So it's going to be a sort of satellite that serves scientific purposes. Um, it's going to increase knowledge of, of um, uh, the Earth. And the Soviet Union uh, very swiftly follows suit um, uh, and announces it's going to do the same. And so that's um, that's the sort of moment, I think, where you can see um, both sides very much invested in V2, in the development of V2 technology into their own kind of rocket series. But it's in the mid-1950s that the idea of the kind of satellite really takes flight in, in both countries. Mm. And how much of a turning point was the Soviet launch in 1957 of Sputnik? The Americans very much expected um, that the Soviets would launch a, a satellite. The Soviets had indeed announced that they were planning to do so sometime soon on, on uh, Moscow radio, but announced that this, this was their intention. And so there was already a sort of sense of a kind of competition and a, and, and a, and a race. And so in many ways, um, it wasn't a huge surprise that the Soviets got there um, first. However, what was a surprise, I think, to, to many people within the American administration was the reaction to, to Sputnik across uh, the world. It was even a surprise to um, uh, to Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet uh, premier, who thought that the 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 most sort of powerful evidence of Soviet superiority or alleged superiority over over Western systems would come as a result of the development of intercontinental mis ballistic missiles. And so, when he woke up on the morning after the launch of Sputnik and found that all these sort of newspapers around the world were paying attention to to Sputnik as sort of evidence of um, uh, Soviet superiority or at least uh, a, a growing uh, Soviet technological advancement. Um, he sort of woke up to this uh, possibility too. And so that sort of sense that Sputnik had uh, shaken up the perception of the relative progress and state of advancement uh, between the two superpowers, I think came as a, quite a surprise to, to the uh, Americans. And it certainly created quite a lot of debate within the administration, within the US Congress about the need to uh, respond uh, more quickly to this, to sort of accelerate sort of the, um, uh, the research and development for American uh, space uh, technology. And one of the 
problems that they had to in- encounter was that the first attempt to, to do this, to launch um, uh, an American uh, satellite, uh, it blew up on the launch pad on, on live uh, television, which wasn't a, a great advertisement for uh, American technological uh, prowess. Just at the moment when the Soviets had repeated the, the, the feat of Sputnik with uh, Sputnik 2, uh, launching a dog uh, into orbit. And it's at this point that NASA becomes a player in this story. I mean, what what led to that happening? So NASA is um, NASA is an interesting uh, creation because up to the 1957, 1958, when people have been thinking about who was going to be running uh, the space programs, if, even when they occurred in the United States, they tended to assume that it would be the Air Force, uh, the American Air Force, that it would lie. It would be a, very much be a sort of sphere of military um, operations. And in many ways, it, that's something that continue to, to happen. There is, we shouldn't forget, uh, through the late 1950s and, and 1960s, a very sizable military space program in, in the United States. Nevertheless, it was seen as important by uh, members of the, the Eisenhower administration that the American space program be seen to be different to what the Soviet space program um, uh, to, was that it should have a strong civilian and and at least notionally sort of scientific uh, purpose for various kind of reasons of, of of propaganda and it's so it's for that reason that that NASA was founded as a sort of distinct civilian uh, agency. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. On its own terms, very impressive, um, but you sort of I I think you have to sort of think about. An achievement should have a legacy, and that's where the the struggle comes in, I think, a little bit in terms of um, thinking about the Apollo program. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So when uh, Kennedy announced that it was his intention to land on the moon within a decade, how likely was it, do you think, that he would succeed? So NASA had been thinking about the possibility of sending somebody to uh, the moon for a while. Werner von Braun had, um, for for quite a long time, had been emphasizing this as something that um, was a natural stage in the kind of uh, progression of man's capability in 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 space. You begin with uh, an unmanned satellite. You go up to a sort of manned Earth orbital uh, mission. Then the idea was that you build a space station. And then after that, you would go on to the moon and then on on to Mars. So in a way, the the idea of going to to the moon uh, by that sort of sequence should have happened after the development of a a sort of permanent uh, space station. But by the late 1950s, early 19, uh, June 1960, NASA has begun to think this is possible. And it reports in February 1961 that it would be uh, conceivable to get to the moon um, with by the end of the decade, which sort of sets the template, I think, for uh, Kennedy's uh, speech. There's lots of reasons why Kennedy uh, decided to embrace this goal, but at least the fact that the space agency thought that it was possible, um, you know, he had that in his back pocket. However, we have to remember there's an enormous amount of work that still had to be um, done in terms of developing the rocket boosters that would actually be um, uh, powerful enough to launch whatever hardware you plan to to, to get up uh, both into Earth orbit and then on to the moon, and also just working out how precisely you would make a landing on the moon because it wasn't entirely clear uh, what that would involve did it mean you would just sort of send a rocket straight up into space and try and sort of fire it all the way to the moon and it would sort of land on the moon's surface and then take off again or was there some more kind of complex form of technology involved so there was a lot there were a lot of kind of imponderables um, about how you would do this and one of the things that kennedy emphasized in the speech that he made in in, in may 1961 announcing the uh, uh, the, the lunar landing goal was this was going to involve a lot of resources. It was going to involve obviously a lot of money, but it was also going to involve the development of a lot of scientific and technological expertise geared to this goal. And there would be sacrifices in other areas of, of uh, national life as as that sort of scientific and technological expertise focused on these problems. And so that so we have to be aware, I think, that that it wasn't entirely certain how this was going to be done. There was a quite a lot of a it was a uh, quite a big uh, gamble. Nevertheless, Kennedy had had assurances from within NASA that this was um, that success was indeed conceivable. Mm. And how important do you think him making that statement was in setting the kind of tempo and making this a goal that was being pushed towards? The speech is really um, very important, uh, but we have to remember the context uh, in which it takes place because a president can't, as as lots of subsequent presidents have realized, you can't just announce a, uh, a highly expensive uh, space spectacular um, and announce that it's going to take place um, if Congress is not ready to give you the money for it. And um, 
And so Kennedy's speech falls into a context where Yuri Gagarin has just taken, has just orbited the Earth. The first first manned spaceflight has just taken place in Vostok 1. The Kennedy administration has just suffered a horrible embarrassment in Cuba with the the, the failed Bay of Pigs um, uh, invasion. And so there is a a, a sort of deeply unsettled feeling within Washington in in the um, in the early nineteen in in early nineteen sixty one that once again the Soviets were sort of proving to the third world that the the competition that the Americans thought that they were ahead of in terms of proving the desirability of organizing yourself along a kind of free enterprise line that was no longer a gimme and that that there were plenty of plenty of sort of decolonizing countries in 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 the third world that might eventually as a result of looking at uh, Gagarin looking at the Bay of Pigs and so on and and, and decide that actually their future lay more with uh, through the adoption of the, the the Soviet model, and so it's not just Kennedy who thinks that. There's quite a lot of people within the the U.S. Congress who think that too. And so it's this context that allows uh, Kennedy to 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 get the funding for um, uh, the Apollo uh, program uh, in the in from 1961, 1962, 1963. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, for what extent of the space race did it look like the Soviets might win or that the U.S. might not win? Um, well, there is a lot of uncertainty. I mean, the one reason why Kennedy um, and his officials are quite keen on the idea of a lunar landing is because there wasn't a huge amount of evidence that the Soviets had thought about it at that um, point. So it, it did seem a sort of opportunity for uh, leapfrogging. You know, if you invest in this, um, it, 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 as it were, in a step that's sort of two or three steps ahead of where where you might naturally go next. Um, then you have a better chance of achieving that if the other if the other side is still working through methodically the 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 next one or two steps. Um, nevertheless, for some period of time, the Soviets are still doing the you know, they they are still achieving a lot of spectacular firsts. So after Gagarin's flight in August 1961, you have um, a cosmonaut Titov uh, spending a day in space, which is you know uh, a feat of endurance that the Americans weren't able to to catch up with for another couple of years. Uh, they get they launched the first woman in space, uh, Valentina Tereshkova, in, in June 1963. Um, in October 1964, they launch a three-man crew um, on, a, on a spacecraft, March 1965. Um, um, uh, Alexei Leonov uh, becomes the first cosmonaut uh, to, to engage in a, in a in a space walk. So there's a lot of sort of fairly spectacular achievements taking place within the Soviet program. Um, whereas what the Americans are doing are sort of slowly are sort of trying to sort of pace themselves methodically to to, to reaching this kind of lunar goal um, by the end of the decade. The one thing to remember, I think, though, is that it's um, what they have what they can benefit from is that the Soviets are, a lot of these triumphs are very kind of ad hoc triumphs. They are partly responsive to the need to um, appease the, the Kremlin. The Kremlin's got kind of used to having these spectaculars now. And, and so uh, some of them are to some extent kind of artificial uh, spectaculars. They don't actually point to a very well sequenced and developed um, uh, space program. It's only in 1964 that the Kremlin really realizes that the Americans are serious about getting to the moon um, by the end of the decade. And then uh, the Kremlin places some degree of sort of pressure upon um, Soviet rocketeers to, to get a circumlunar mission to the moon. That's a, a, it's a mission that would go around the moon, if not land on it. 
1967, which would be the 50th anniversary of the, the Bolshevik uh, revolution. So there's a sort of mixture of neglect within the Soviet Union, a kind of uh, complacent interest in these uh, space spectaculars. And then suddenly from 1964 onwards, a kind of crash program with a lot of kind of pressure placed upon um, Soviet rocket engineers to achieve uh, the next, to, to achieve something that would rival um, uh, the Apollo program. We've mentioned money a couple of times. How much did the US uh, side of the space race cost? And was there any opposition to this money being spent in this way? So there's a, there's, as inevitably, and we 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 know plenty of examples of this, the um, the initial tice, price tag is um, much less than the eventual uh, price tag. That just seems to be part of the. Um, you you need a relatively low estimate in order to get people to agree to it, um, and once they've agreed to it, it becomes easier to kind of increase the uh, the costs. And of course, thereafter, once a commitment has been made by the um, by NASA and by the uh, the White House, it becomes a little bit easier for contractors to sort of say, well, if we're really going to do it by that deadline, we need to throw in, you know, we need a little bit more money on the estimates that we provided, you know. Um, and so there's always a um, there's always an increase. So initially, I think the Kennedy administration was thinking this was going to be costing about sort of seven to nine billion dollars. It turns out to be closer in the region of of, of twenty. And as time goes on. As those costs become clearer and clearer, um, and as a sense of, sort of social crisis begins to um, uh, affect the United States from the mid-1960s onwards, when you have a whole series of kind of unrest in American cities, you have uh, the Johnson administration of as uh, uh, announcing a war on, on, on poverty, which is subsequently partly as a result of, um, uh, primarily as a result of the expenditures on Vietnam, is unable to, to fund. People start looking at the Apollo program and saying, is this really what we need? Is this the priority for, for, for us? Um, there are, of course, lots of people who still think it is and who still think of it as a important venture in Cold War terms and well worth the investment. If you're an aerospace engineer somewhere in California or in Florida, you're making a lot of money out of um, uh, this. You think this is this is great. But if you're an African-American living in, in, in Harlem and, the, and, the, and there's a huge degree of kind of deprivation around you, you're much less likely to be a kind of cheerleader for this um, uh, program. And so... By the 1967-1968, there's there's a growing sense of sort of opposition, and even within opinion polls, uh, it's actually quite rare from um, the mid 1960s onwards for there to be majority support for the Apollo um, program. There's a lot of concern um, uh, about the costs and whether this is a, a this is the the sort of something that Americans should be uh, prioritising. Mm. And as we head into, into 1969, did that scepticism continue or as it became more and more likely that this is going to happen, did people's views start to change? So that's, a, that's a really interesting um, uh, question. And, and I think the answer is, is quite complex. There is in response, there's a lot of interest in the Apollo 8 uh, mission, which is the, uh, the, the first circumlunar um, manned mission, which occurs on, on in December 1968, with a broadcast back to, to Earth from the Apollo 3 um, uh, command module, where they, uh, on this kind of broadcast that's listened to by just millions and millions and millions of people around the world uh, on radio and television, they broadcast, they, 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 they 
um, read out the first ten verses of, of Genesis. And this is a this is a kind of fantastic moment in many ways. It's a it's the first words that you can hear back from the shores of another world. Um, it's it's really spectacular, and, and you see a sort of bump in in support around that um, uh, time. And as the anticipation rises uh, for uh, Apollo Eleven, you can see a genuine sense of popular participation and interest in this. I think people are aware that. You don't necessarily want to cancel. I mean, as it were, all the costs have been built in to this moment. You don't want to necessarily kind of cancel. It would be stupid to kind of cancel this just on just on the kind of eve of the spectacular. So people are uh, sort of aware that the Apollo 11 is coming up and they're, and they're looking forward to it. Uh, however, even as Armstrong and Aldrin are making their, their steps upon the moon, there is quite a lot of opposition. Um, still being felt in, still being rehearsed in various um, sectors of the of the press, and um, just prior to the launch of Apollo 11, uh, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, who's um, uh, had been until uh, he'd been an associate of Martin Luther King, who'd been assassinated the previous uh, year, um, led a group of what he called the Poor People's Campaign to the um, Apollo 11 launch site in Cape Canaveral uh, to protest the expenditure upon the um, Earth space program to emphasize that this wasn't a um, uh, the kind of priority. This, this wasn't the, the, the most important thing that, that Americans should be investing in at, at this particular moment. And as we head into the actual mission itself, to what extent did that go to plan? Um, so, I, I mean, I don't think anybody expected that it would go entirely to plan because uh, there were a lot of in, there, there were a lot of sort of imponderables and things that you couldn't necessarily test in advance. So one of the certainly things that you couldn't test in advance was using the lunar module actually to land on the surface of the moon. Uh, the Apollo 10 mission had. Um, a, detach the the lunar module from the command module in lunar orbit and it had flown um, relatively close to the to the moon surface surface and then then um, gone back up to uh, to rejoin the the command module and of course you can't test the lunar module in um, uh, on earth either because of uh, the difference between the, the sort of lunar gravity and and earth's gravity and so this is a really this is a new piece of technology that's being really kind of tested um, in operation for the very first uh, time. And so I think there are a lot of kind of concerns um, uh, about this. There's, uh, I'm not quite, I can't remember precisely what the, the chances of success were, but they, they weren't 100, <laughs> they certainly weren't perceived, perceived as 100%. And so what happens when the lunar module leaves the command module in um uh, in lunar orbit and starts to head down towards the surface of the moon is that radio contact starts to get a little bit sketchy and you start getting the landing computer sending program alarms saying it's got too much to do. It's almost got too much information. I mean, the landing computer, you can imagine, is uh, on the lunar module is, is not terribly well advanced by um, uh, contemporary standards. So it's got too much to do. It starts sending these alarms and you have to sort of work out whether these are serious alarms or whether it's something that can just be over overridden by um, Neil Armstrong's piloting. And the other thing that they have to worry about is that uh, as it gets closer to um, the surface, Armstrong starts to note that the area that he's supposed to land in is, is sort of festooned with boulders and, and, and craters. And, and so he has to carry on for a while until he can find a sort of flatter and more convenient place to, to land. All the time, the fuel that they have for um, 
uh, making the landing is beginning to run out. And it's it's that reason you know they, they only have a uh, less than a minute's worth of fuel um, left. That when they finally um, make the landing, you have Charlie Duke, who's the Capcom, um, the capsule communicator back in Houston, saying um, you had a few guys turning blue uh, here. It shows you the level of anxiety that they had about how how this could could go wrong. Um, as we know, in hindsight, of course, it didn't go wrong. They landed and it was a kind of a pivotal moment in America's 20th century. But I mean, what, if anything, did it actually gain the US? That is a, a, a sort of super controversial question. And, and it's something that people are still arguing about. Um, you know, what, what, what ultimately was the point of this? Was, this? was this, as people expected, a kind of uh, a lot of the analogies that were being used uh, around mid-1962 were, were comparisons to Christopher Columbus. Uh, is this going to be the opening, uh, the opening step in a kind of uh, wide new kind of horizon of possibility? You, you, you land on the moon, you start creating a colony on the moon, you practice for going on to Mars and, 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 and so on. Um, or is it more like Leif Erikson? Um, you know, many hundreds of years ago, uh, uh, going on a sort of ship around the um, to, to North America and, and, and nothing really, you know, creating a, a, a settlement there and, it, and it, nothing really follows as a result of uh, of it. Um, and so those, you know, that that question about what, what does it actually give the United States beyond the prestige of doing it? Doing it well, certainly you can count. There's some scientific knowledge that's produced in terms of um, uh, the nature of the moon, the makeup of the moon. Uh, it helps to generate a new understanding of, of how the how the moon came to be. Um, there are other sort of spin-offs from uh, the program. I mean, people um, uh, talk about miniaturization, for example. People talk about Velcro, Teflon, those sort of um, uh, things. That The things that were developed as a result of the um, the Apollo program that might not have been developed uh, anyway. Um, but NASA always found it quite difficult to develop much, to, to, to sort of sell the spin-offs, really, in terms of uh, generating much enthusiasm. Um, uh, for them. It never found there was a huge amount of interest in the scientific payoffs either um, uh, for the Apollo program. Um, and so I think it is actually quite difficult to, to, cons- to, to, to judge that this had a, um, that the investment was really uh, worth it. And certainly that's a judgment that's beginning to be made within the Nixon administration. Um, uh, even even as Nixon himself places himself, President Nixon places himself front and center at the as the astronauts return home, he's on the ship to to, to greet them. He talks to them as they're in their um, uh, as as they're sort of confi- in their sort of site of confinement um, back on the ship. Um, he's very much sort of front and center of the celebrations that follow. But he's really not that interested in in the Apollo program um, or following it up with any kind of major funded. Uh, space venture. And so the Apollo program over time just starts to sort of uh, fade away. The sort of later planned missions in the program start to get cancelled. Um, uh, and so, you know, you get six manned, you get six landings uh, on the moon, but nothing else. And there's no colony built. There's no, um, uh, there's no going on to Mars there afterwards in terms of a, a, a investment in a manned space program, uh, a more uh, ambitious space program thereafter. Um, so, 
the calculation I think that's being made within the Nixon administration is a, is a political calculation, which is that people have seen the Apollo program, they like the spectacular, they enjoyed Apollo 11, but they're not actually anxious for a repeat. Mm. And what was the reaction in the communist bloc, both at the time and I suppose immediately afterwards? So the, the Soviet Union in particular um, was aware by, certainly after Apollo uh, 8 and probably earlier, that it was not going to win this race to the moon. And so the natural reaction of um, uh, Soviet officials is to almost pretend that they were never that interested in going to the moon in, in the first instance. And there's, there's almost a kind of blanket of secrecy that starts to descend over the fact that they had made quite substantial investments in, in rockets to um, uh, facilitate a, a uh, lunar landing. And it's, it's, there's almost a sort of a, a decade or a couple of decades of kind of secrecy about this. And um, uh, it's a very much a kind of hidden from from view um and so the us the, the the soviet union very much kind of downplays the significance of it there is a i guess um a general sort of polite congratulations that are <laughs> that are um offered to the united states upon this um uh, upon this feat and you can imagine that the uh, soviet people who have been used to sputnik gagarin titov all the sort of spectaculars of the um the early 1960s might start wondering um whether you know what had happened so that the that, that the that the americans had got got there first and what actually happens in the soviet union thereafter is that they um they start emphasizing instead their capacity for long duration space flight um they have developed over the course of the late 1960s the uh, the technology of the soyuz um uh, capsule which becomes really the kind of linchpin of a lot that was to follow in terms of soviet space flight and indeed it's sort of at, its successes are still in 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 use today um they start building space pro, uh, uh, space stations and you you think about um the mer space station for example in the in the um in the 1980s and um and and so they start arguing on the basis of, of that that they were never very interested in, in these sort of short-term spectaculars such as the, the the Apollo program they'd always been building for the long term um, and and the sort of their successes in terms of long duration space flight in the in the 1970s and early 1980s make that a little bit more plausible but we have to know you know now we know um, that there was an awful lot of, of effort being put into the um, into the the uh, attempt to go to the moon and try and beat in, beat the Americans. It's just that a kind of blanket a veil was pulled over that uh, in the wake of the American success. Do you think their success was the greatest achievement of the 20th century? Oh God! I mean, I don't know what I don't know what the greatest achievement of the 20th century was, and I think I think it's a remarkable achievement um, given where the Americans were. Uh, it took. Uh, a lot of resources. It took a lot of organisation. Um, it's uh, it's on its own terms very impressive. Um, but you sort of, I, I think you have to sort of think about an achievement should have a legacy, and that's where the the struggle comes in. I think a little bit in terms of. Um, thinking about the Apollo program. Undoubtedly, it has legacies. There are scientific trade-offs. There are economic spin-offs. There is a, there's, a, there's a legacy in terms of people rem- citing themselves in relation to this um, uh, event. The, the, there's a, you know, if you're looking at a kind of event in which more people than ever before on Earth were looking, were, were, were looking 
at their televisions or listening to the radio or standing outside looking at the moon as this event was taking place, this sense of a kind of um, certainly a national communion, but also a kind of global communion. That's a that's an amazing thing to have uh, created. And perhaps the major sort of legacy of the Apollo program is is that sort of memory of that moment um, when everyone or, or, or at least, you know, a large portion of the, the the world's population stood together and 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 sort of breathed in sync as 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 the Apollo 11 made its way towards the the lunar surface, um, and we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of understandable nostalgia, I think, for for that at a moment when. Uh, society seems quite divisive. There's a lot of emphasis upon narrow casting of, of just a fragmented audience. You know, the, the, these moments seem increasingly rare, perhaps. Um, so I think the sort of legacy of the uh, Apollo program is is in that it lies in many in many ways with that um, sense of a kind of communal moment. But I wouldn't necessarily count that as being the um, uh, qualifying it for the uh, the status of the most impressive achievement of the uh, 20th century, because the more solid social and economic and political uh, legacies, you know, are not quite there to see in the same way. Um, finally, then, given that nostalgia that you just talked about, how would you like people today in 2019 um, to understand this moment in history? differently? Are there things that we should understand about it afresh, do you think? So when we think about the um, Apollo 11 moon landing and the broader Apollo program, we have to understand it as as being part of a broader society um, and, and, and part of a very kind of complicated and fluctuating um, uh, context, which is composed in very large measure by the Cold War, by what's happening in terms of the production of military hardware, um, uh, military space programs, uh, but it's also, and, and, and obviously kind of Cold War politics, um, but it's also affected by some broader ideas about um, uh, the mortality of the, of the earth, about there are some religious ideas that around um, that are that very much kind of influence some people's perceptions of the of, of the space program. This is after all a venture into the heavens. Um, there are a lot of interest in the idea of how do you perfect human society? Can you do it on 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 Earth, or can you do it? Uh, do you need to travel somewhere else to uh, achieve that? Um, so I, there's a lot of really interesting ideas. I think that that. Um, that the space program stimulates and crystallizes, and I, I very much would like people to think about the the the, the Apollo uh, moon landing as uh, as not just one fairly discrete technological feat, but but as part of um, uh, an American society, but also a global society that's in in flux, that's full of anxieties as well as aspirations, um, fears as well as as as. Um, hopes and uh, um, you know, and I think we can perhaps it humanizes the space program if we think about it in these terms. It doesn't seem so remote. It doesn't seem just like a device that's that's generated from some very very clever people who are um, uh, uh, you know living in Florida or in Houston at at a particular sort of moment in time. Um, the space program, the, the Apollo Eleven, was a was a was a venture that very much kind of belonged to its times. Um, and I, I think it, we need to sort of think more generally about uh, the space age and about our own sort of ideas about where we would like to go in space as belonging to us too. And 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 
other all of us having some degree of kind of agency in, in directing um, uh, the human future in space. That was Kendrick Oliver. You can read Kendrick's feature on the Apollo 11 mission in the August issue of BBC History magazine. For more on the space race, pick up the latest copy of BBC World Histories, our sister magazine. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when we'll be discussing a major moment in the fight for gay rights, the Stonewall Riots. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.